today, um, Sally and Jim are going to share their stories. Um, first will be Sally, Gary. I'm, I've known Sally for a few years. Not as well as some of you, um, but she is a wonderful woman um, that I have the privilege to call a friend. But let me just read Sally's bio and then you will get to um, hear from her. Centerpiece is a, this, she wrote this, um, so this is very accurate, I'm going to assume, okay? And if there's any elaboration or embellishment, I always say that a little embellishment for every story goes a long way, so, you know. I might embellish a little bit, I don't know. We'll see. Um, oh, yes, I've got to tell this part. Okay, so I told all the, all the speakers for this week to get me their bio by 12 a.m., Thursday, because I was leaving Friday morning on my vacation to come here. I, I came here by way of Nashville, Searcy, Arkansas, Little Rock, Dallas, here. Okay, I, I, I may not have traveled the furthest, but I think I traveled the longest. I think I should get a reward for that. Um, this is why I started four minutes early, because I can't stop talking. I will. So Sally's, I'm in the Eastern time zone. Sally was the last one. I got, a, I got a message from her sometime Thursday saying, I promise to have it to you by midnight. I wake up the next morning, and I know she's going to. She's very slow on returning my messages because she probably doesn't like me very much. But I get this message the next morning. Oh, I, I'm on Angus's. He's tomorrow. There it is. Um, and I, I wake up. It is time stamped Eastern time zone. 1200, and I'm like, Sally, you little snot. That's awesome. So here's her bio. Um, legalist, yeah, that's, that's Sally, all right. We all know her. Centerpiece is a 503C nonprofit organization to, dedicated to providing safe places for men and women who experience same sex attraction. Founded by Sally, Sally Gary, that's her last name. Let's call her Sally Gary. Founded by Sally Gary in 2006, Centerpiece helps churches and families better understand same-sex attraction. The ministry grew out of Sally's own struggle in resolving her faith and sexuality and now provides resources to individuals all over the world. If you haven't read Sally's book, likes... Loves God, likes girls. Thank you. I always get that backwards. Say it again really Jason loudly. has those over at Leafwood. Yes. Well. Say it again really loudly. Loves God, likes girls. Wonderful book. I've read it. It's, it's beautiful. Um, okay. The ministry grew out of Sally's own struggle in resolving her faith and sexuality and now provides resources to individuals all over the world. From 2001 to 2011, Sally served on the faculty at Abilene Christian University teaching in the communication department. Sally holds a bachelor's and master's degree in communication from ACU and a law degree from Texas Tech University. She has coached high school speech and debate practiced civil trial law and served as general counsel to the Senate Education Committee during the 2001 session of the Texas Legislature. Currently, Sally works full-time as Executive Director for Centerpiece, come on up Sally, um, sharing her experience at churches and universities all across the country. Um, I can read and direct traffic at the same time. Sally lives in Dallas and considers the Highland Oaks Church her home. Father God, Jesus and Holy Spirit, I bring before you Sally Gary. I pray that your spirit will well up within her and that your presence will fill this room as she shares your story in her life today. Amen. Thank you, Christy. Well, I would venture to say that I grew up like a lot of you. I grew up going to church every time the doors were open. Some of you, although many of you in this room are not old enough to remember pictures that look like this, some of you are, you'll recognize this as a classic 1969 church directory picture. Old Mills? Uh, oh, probably Old Mills, yes. That's my mom and dad and my little eight-year-old self, a sweet sweet little girl. You haven't changed a bit. Exactly, exactly. I, uh, I grew up um, knowing that God comes first in our lives. There's never been a time that I didn't know who Jesus was. There's never been a time that I have not looked to God, recognized God 
as the most important part of my life. There's never been a time that I wasn't involved in a church. I uh, grew up like every other kid, um, trying to figure out uh, what it was that I was put here to do, trying to figure out what my gifts were, what my skill set was, what God had given me, Sally, to be able to do. Um, I was actively involved in school, in extracurricular activities. Did, I was a band nerd. I did all of that. I uh, was active in the youth group, a leader there. I was a good kid. I was the kid that teachers wanted in their class. Uh, band director might not uh, agree with you there, but uh, it was a good, it was a good time. <coughs> There were secrets that we kept in our family. There were things that we didn't talk about. My father uh, experienced uh, a lot of anger and rage, and I didn't always know what to do with that, but there were lots of good times and lots of good things, far more good things that my mom and dad gave me. Number one, they taught me about Jesus. And so when I went off to Abilene Christian University in the fall of 1979, <laughs> 10 years after this picture, I was the same kid, only I was older now, and I was growing in lots of ways that I didn't completely understand. And I was experiencing feelings that I didn't understand and I didn't have any idea what to do with and I found myself a junior in college at Abilene Christian University, this place that I loved, and that loved me, being attracted to my best friend, who was a girl. I had no idea what to do with that, and I had no idea who I could talk to about that. I felt completely isolated and alone. I had no one to go to. So I prayed. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed some more after graduate school and I got a job teaching high school. I continued to pray for God to remove these feelings. After 10 years of teaching high school, you kind of lose your mind after teaching high school for 10 years. I decided at that point that I would go to law school, wanted to practice law. It was kind of a natural progression from coaching debate. And so I did that, and it was there that um, I think the Lord really spoke to me in a powerful way. Because you see, all that time for the first three decades plus, of my life, I had kept secrets. Secrets about things that went on at home and secrets now <coughs> about my sexuality <coughs> because I didn't dare breathe a word. I had heard the stories of my friends who were gay, whose parents had found out and how they had been disowned, how they had been completely alienated, estranged from their families. I was terrified of the same thing happening to me. And so I didn't say a word all those decades until law school. And I finally got to a place where I was absolutely miserable because I was all alone, you see. And while I had a lot of friends and I was actively involved in a lot of things, no one knew Sally. I knew a lot of people. I knew a lot about their stuff, but no one knew me for me because the silence that I had been forced to live in, as it always does, had created so much shame in me that I was overwhelmed and overburdened with shame that I had carried for years That's what God wanted to remove from me. 
that's what God wanted to deliver me from. That was the brokenness in my life was the overwhelming burden of shame that I carried for something that I did not choose, that was not of my own volition. I did not choose to be gay. And so God wanted me to know, Sally, I love you, period. End of story. And yet the beginning of the story. Yes. Because when God lifted that burden of shame from me, all sorts of things began to happen. And slowly but surely, I began to have a stronger voice. And I began to realize there are lots of families just like this with children who identify as gay, who in our vernacular now identify as LGBTQ+, who have no place to talk. And they're sitting right in our pews. And we don't think that's possible. We think that only someone who has fallen off the deep end could possibly experience feelings of same-sex attraction. Nothing further could be from the truth. There are people in your midst right now who love the Lord with all their hearts, who experience feelings of attraction for their own sex, who identify as gay. We wanted to create a place that would help churches and help families have better conversations, have kinder, gentler, more Christ-centered conversations, and know the truth that Jesus invites all of us to the table. And so out of that, out of that brokenness of carrying that shame for all those years, came a ministry called Centerpiece. If you've not heard of us, you need to become familiar. I'm sorry all the brochures are gone. Yesterday's class took them. But you can go to our website, you can send us an email, you can connect with us on Facebook, LinkedIn, I'm not real big on LinkedIn, but uh, Instagram, Twitter, you can follow us and keep up with what's going on uh, in the ministry of Centerpiece. We have been a 501c3 for 12 years in June, and it's been absolutely amazing. We have uh, become an international ministry. Um, visiting churches with what we call peacemaker workshops where we go in and talk to an entire congregation or just church leaders to say, what do we do? How do we talk about this? We need to learn language. We need to learn how to respond. And so from that, we have ministered not only to churches but specifically to parents like my mom and dad who had nobody that they felt safe to talk to without casting judgment on their child. And so we do retreats for parents. We do retreats for LGBTQ Christians who want to know, what does this mean for me? Can, can I live a life as a Christ follower? Because I want to, but I've been ostracized from my church. I've been told I couldn't be a member here. Is there a place for me within the body of Christ? And so we offer retreats uh, at least once a year that help people find a place to fit within the body of Christ. This October, we will be offering our fourth national conference. At the last one, we had over 500 people, and I'm hoping we can double that attendance this next year. It'll be at the Highland Oaks Church in Dallas, Texas, October 4th through the 7th. I'm very excited to announce that Justin Lee, uh, a very well-known author and popular speaker, the uh, founder of uh, the Gay Christian Network, who's written a book called Torn, and he has another book coming out in August called Talking Across the Divide that is going to help us as church leaders have kinder, gentler conversations. And maybe we won't all agree but we can certainly stay together, and we can certainly love each other as God calls us to. You have a card. Uh, if you want more cards, if you want to take these to friends that you know, to your elders, there will be classes on Scripture. 
There'll be classes for parents. There'll be classes that start at the very beginning. You may be thinking, this is the first time I've ever heard anybody in a church-type setting talk about this. We'll be doing some very basic classes to help us better understand what it is like for someone who is gay, who's grown up in a Christian home. The vast majority of us have. And so I welcome your questions right now, uh, and I hope that you will join us in October. How much time do we have for questions, Christine? Before you answer questions, let me say, um, all this information, not all that, but all the contact information is also in the book that's available Fantastic. from Jason for $12. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. I taught middle school, so uh, there's probably nothing you could ask me that uh, would embarrass me. Ten minutes for questions. Yes. Right back here. I wanted to find out, I know that you grew up in a Christian home, and thank you for your honesty and your transparency. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Thank have you. you reached out to, have you gotten a lot of response also from the secular um, homosexual, uh, GB, uh, I'm sorry, LBT, LGBTQ? Yes, <laughs> just and, and their transformation too, because uh, I think that that has crossed my path too as far as uh, the women and the men that I've known that haven't been Christian, that haven't never accepted the Lord. So I was just wondering, do you use that as an outreach too? Uh, certainly we, we would. Most of the, the folks that we interact with um, are, are Christian, have come from Christian homes. Uh, now they may have been very hurt by church and be very uh, discouraged and not want any part of church, Christianity, God. Uh, my friends that I went to ACU with whose family uh, disowned them, uh, it's, it's really hard now. Uh, in their 50s to find a, a place of, of faith in, in God. Um, that's still happening, unfortunately, for people to lose their, their faith because of the way we treat LGBT people. But um, a lot of, a lot of uh, the, the folks that we work with are, are Christian and are, are looking for some expression of faith, but that would not, uh, that would not exclude at all. Thank you. Not ever. Yeah. Yesterday in your class, um, you and Pat were talking and you mentioned some percentages of how many LB LGBTQ Christians grew up in the church and how many went to the church are still in the church. Could you go over those again? Yeah. Uh, there's a book by Andrew Marin called Us Versus Us. And in that, it's his doctoral dissertation in which he did a, a study. I uh, did a survey of LGBTQ people and he found out that 86% of us have grown up in Christian homes. Now you may be thinking it's probably just Easter and Christmas Christian homes. <laughs> no. It's Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, youth group for those uh, who have choirs, choir practice and every other type of gathering that you can mention. Uh, kids who go to camp in the summer and who end up going to Christian universities. So 86%. But then when you go back and you ask that same group of people, how many of you are still involved in a church like you were when you were younger? It drops to 20-something. But when you ask if you could find a church that would welcome you, how many of you would go? That number jumps back up to 70 some odd percent. People are looking for a place to find connection with God, to have a church family. We are starved for a church family. Can you imagine living life without a church family? That's what we've asked our LGBTQ brothers and sisters to do to live without connection to the body of Christ because of one area in their lives that we deemed not God-honoring. There may be lots of other things that are not God-honoring. And certainly I've got lots of stuff in my life that's not God-honoring, but I get to come in. That just doesn't make sense. That's what we're working to change. Yes? What are some 
suggestions you have when you're talking with people in our congregations who maybe they haven't had personal relationships with people in the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. So they really don't know or they're not comfortable with how to interact with those individuals and realize they're just people. Yes, we are. And <laughs> so right there, and realize they're just people. Sorry, Sally. And, I yes. mean, because I know there's a lot of folks in my generation, you know, the 20s and early 30s who are not part of the LGBTQ community, but have people that they love, that they care about mm -hmm. who are, sure. who walked away from church because they're like, wait a second, you're going to tell me that I can't be friends with this person, that I'm not supposed to love exactly. this person? Mm -hmm. Exactly. What do we, like, what do we say? That's the, that's the biggest problem. That, that is the, the main concern that we in the Ministry of Centerpiece have is for our children and, and you, tell me your name. Amanda. Amanda, you heard Amanda say, it's not just people within the LGBTQ community who are leaving our churches, it's their, it's their friends. Mm -hmm. It's straight kids mm -hmm. because of the way we treat our friends. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to have any of this generation, we've already lost two generations before them because of this particular issue. So what do you do when someone maybe hasn't had any experience that they know of with someone who is who identifies as gay or lesbian or transgender? Uh, those are, are conversations that you need to have as a, as a congregation, but until that, uh, have a, a group meeting at your home and, and talk and invite a friend in who's willing to share their story and let people listen to some stories. And if you want me to come share my story, I'll be more than happy to do it. And I know others who will do the same. Uh, we're creating a, vid a video series right now that will be video documentaries that you can watch online and that would be a wonderful place to start. Really safe, do it in the privacy of your home and hear that these are people who are not just sitting in your pews. This, this is people who are leading us. We're talking about our elders' children. We're talking about our elders. We're talking about our ministers and our ministers' children. We're talking about precious people that we look to for guidance in every way and they're scared bodily to death to tell you that it's them for fear of how you will respond. Mm -hmm. Good question. Thank you. Two questions real quick. What's the Q stand for in the LBGTQ? Could be two things. It could be first queer, uh, which when I was growing up was a bad word. You didn't call anybody queer. But queer has been uh, reclaimed as an umbrella term for anyone uh, who has a variation in their sexuality, who's anywhere on that, that spectrum, or uh, identifies as LGBTQ+. So it's an umbrella term. The other possibility is that it can stand for questioning. Okay. Someone who is, is questioning their sexuality. And that happens a lot of times, especially among younger kids yeah. mm -hmm. uh, who, who don't understand those feelings how life-changing it would have been had I, when I first recognized there's something different, there's, I feel something different, and that was at a young age. What would it have been like had my parents been educated, had this been a conversation that was ongoing, not, well, we talked about that last, you know, a few years ago. It needs to be ongoing because we haven't talked about it. And had they known that, life would have been very, very different for me. Second point is, I want to ask, and this is more of a personal level for me, because I've had several cousins grew up in church with me. They are gay, mm -hmm. gay females. Actually, one only goes to church when she comes back home, at back to Pulaski, where we're from, and you can see the pain on her face because she feels she can't be free. We've always, from the time I knew my cousin, I knew it was something different about her. I knew she wasn't really attracted to men. She was the best basketball player I've ever played with. And she played at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Just out here, got out there. And then a little cousin came down her, she was the same way. And then as I ministered in Winchester for the first 15 years in my ministry, I had two kids in my congregation that 
they didn't come out to me, but I could see it. But I didn't know how to approach the situation. But it wasn't me worried about me approaching it, because I didn't have a problem with it. It was the older people and how they would treat them. Because I'll tell you an experience that I had, and it really, it made me, it, it, I was angry. I was at a funeral, and it was with the congregation I was ministering at. And a family friend of mine was doing a eulogy. He had preached at this church before, so he knew the girl too. He was doing a sermon that he had not prepared for. She walked up and went to the bathroom. She had to walk past the pulpit to get to the bathroom to the back of the church. And the moment she walked by, she was dressed like a young man. Where we would call, oh, she's dressed like a boy. That's just who she was. She's always been like that since I've known her. He saw her and then turned that sermon on her. I was so angry that I had to pull him to the side. I said, why did you do that child that way? Yeah. She didn't deserve what you did because you didn't prepare. That's exactly right. You shouldn't have, and she never came back. Yeah. yeah. I'm right with you, brother. Thank you. Thank you for uh, loving us and caring, and you stay connected because uh, you can make the difference. Mm -hmm. Those tears can make the difference. Yeah. That hurt. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it wasn't even my child, but my gosh, that was just, oh my goodness. Yeah. That wasn't Christ-like at all. That's exactly right. Thank you for sharing that. Any other questions? Okay. Thank you, Sally. Let me you put, put this on back on the black. There we go. <laughs> Thank you, Sally. Um, talk to her if you get a chance. She's amazing. Um, thank you, Angus. That was moving. If you want to hear more from Angus, come back tomorrow. He will be sharing his story along with, as he also wrote a chapter, along with um, Eric, who is, I don't think, here today. Um, but he will be sharing his story as well tomorrow. That was very, very good. Thank you. And thank you for your questions, those of you who, who asked. Jim. What's up next? Jim um, and I went to grad school together a little bit at Harding School of Theology. Um, I heard, <laughs> of all things, I don't know if you remember this, but I heard uh, a good bit of Jim's story while we walked together next to each other on treadmills <laughs> in the fitness center, the fitness center <laughs> at HST when it was in the library for a little bit. Yeah, it was a fitness center. It had couple of treadmills uh, in an old, yeah, love a Harding School of Theology, by the way, is what HST is. I don't know if I said that all the way. That's it used to be called, yeah, it's in Memphis, yeah, and it used to be called Harding Undergraduate School of Religion. Okay, so, <clears throat> yeah, it was like 1998, 99, um, and then they moved away, his family moved away and gave us a dog and loved Goldie. She was great, yeah. Jim is a good guy. Jim is a, has a good, 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 wonderful family. All right, how about if I just read what he wrote about himself um, so he can actually tell you more of what you came to hear. Jim Hallway serves as the lead minister for the Sunset Church of Christ, a bilingual church in Miami, Florida, along with, along with his wife, Catherine. They have worked with Spanish-speaking churches in Miami since 2005. Prior to that, Jim and Catherine worked with Spanish-speaking Spanish communities in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and Memphis, Tennessee. They have three adult children, Christy, Sarah, and Jer Jeremy, and one grandson, Caleb. How old is Caleb now? Uh, almost three. Almost three. A second grandson, Weston, is due to arrive in now under two weeks, well, right? today, two weeks from today. Two weeks from today. He was just telling me that the, uh, well, yesterday, I think. Jim received a Master of Arts in Religion from Harding University Graduate School of Religion, now known as Harding School of Theology um, in Memphis, Tennessee. And, uh, that's it. That's all you wrote. So, Well, no. He also wrote a chapter in this book, which is available for $4 in the bag. Um, Jim Holloway. Oh, hey. You know what? I'm going to pray over you. Brother. Thank you. God, I lift up Jim to you today. I pray that you will give him um, the strength and endurance that you give him every single day. Um, 
Thank you for allowing us to sit in his presence mm -hmm. as he speaks you into this room for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Well, as you'll realize, uh, if you read the book, uh, that suffering, pain, and brokenness comes in all shapes and all sizes, in all intensities. And there is emotional pain and brokenness, uh, physical, relational, and then even uh, spiritual. As you read through the, the, the book, you'll find some chapters that are extremely unique that perhaps will never happen to you. And then you'll run across some chapters that will resonate because that eventually, sooner or later, is where uh, you will walk. And my chapter has more to do with that situation because uh, what John Mark asked me to do uh, was to write about chronic illness, disease, and really it's about chronic pain. Uh, if you were to ask me to sum up my life in one sentence, I would sum it up with this phrase, I have lived a charmed life, charmed beyond imagination, but I haven't always believed that. It's taken me some 60 years to get to that point. And so I want to back up those 60 years and kind of uh, walk through uh, that situation and those experiences to then think through uh, perhaps how, depending on what you're facing, uh, you also might be able to find that charmed life that Jesus offers. Uh, I grew up in Korea. Uh, I was born in 1959 in Seoul, which is now kind of in the news, interestingly enough. Um, but uh, my mom was a Korean lady, and my dad was a GI soldier, who American soldier, who did not know he had impregnated her. Uh, they had a one-night stand. He was gone, and there she was with a biracial kid in a very racist country. Uh, Koreans are very, very pure-blooded individuals. When I was two, in 1961, I contracted paralytic polio. A lot of people get polio, or did get polio before the vaccine, and it was a virus, you got sick, and then you got over it. Uh, there was temporary weakness, but um, in, as it turns out, in, in my reading I found out, 1% of all the people who got the polio virus ends up with, ended up with paralytic polio, which actually paralyzed muscles permanently. And that was my case. Um, I grew up feeling cursed. As far as I can remember from those, I don't remember those early years, uh, I, I felt I was cursed. I didn't know God, didn't believe in him, but it just wasn't right. Uh, when I was four, um, in an attempt to get me out of Korea after some uh, various abusive situations that were taking place in the community where we were living, um, my mom put me in an orphanage to get adopted uh, with the hope that I would get adopted maybe brought to the States. And as it turns out, that's what happened. But I was adopted by uh, an American dad and a Japanese mom. And if you know anything about Japanese-Korean relationships, you know that the Japanese hate Koreans and vice versa. Right. And I was a little too young to hate Japanese. I didn't know any different. But she was plenty old enough to hate me. And so uh, she convinced me that I was stupid, uh, flawed, and unloved. And as I was growing up in those years, she was uh, verbally, physically, uh, emotionally abusive. And the only thought that came through my mind over and over and over is like, why in the world would you bring me to this country and treat me like that? Why didn't you just let me die in Korea, on the streets, in the orphanage, and let me deal with my pain there? Well, my dad divorced her in, uh, after when I was 13 years old. And that, for me, was the last straw because the only reason I was adopted was because he wanted to adopt kids. When he left, I said, okay, that's it. I'm checking out. Um, that was the last time I cut my hair for uh, uh, six years. I got extremely involved in the drug culture at 13 in, outside of Washington, D.C. Um, uh, um, just get got continually deeper and deeper. When I was 16, I took my mom's car and drove from D.C. to California and, uh, and lived on the street, did boxcars, uh, picked oranges in Yuma, Arizona with migrant workers, 
and uh, just lived this life. Um, hair down to my waist, a long-haired hippie, OD'd a number of times, got arrested a couple different times. Um, and in, during all this time, I had no relationship with God. My parents were not Christians. They were just, my dad was a do-gooder. Uh, we were adopted through the Pearl S. Buck Foundation, and he wanted to just help some kid out. But I was so filled with rage and bitterness um, that it didn't seem like much help. <laughs> uh, and then I came across a group of students from Fried Hartman University or college back in those days in the D.C. area. And I experienced for the first time true fellowship, communion, belonging. And I thought, wow, this is the kind of relationship I've been longing for all my life. All I wanted to do was to be loved. And these kids, they were roughly my age, they loved me. And I said, well, I'll do whatever you do. And they said, well, we have Jesus. I said, okay, I'll take him. They said, well, you, before you get him, you have to be baptized. Okay, I'll do that. Whatever it takes. Because I knew they had life, and I was literally on uh, a highway to hell. And so after my conversion at 19, you, you remember that movie, The Sixth Sense, where when you get to the end, all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, got to rewind and watch the whole thing. And then with a totally different perspective, you live through that movie. Well... That was my experience. All of a sudden now, my conversion at age 19, from the world to Jesus, from uh, drugs, unhealthy behavior, alcohol, anything that you I mean, we would get, and, and again, boasting about sufferings and boasting about evil is, is a really foolish thing, as Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians. But, but I was so wrapped up in that world. And now I was a Christian. I, I was, I mean, I, got, I cut my hair to my shoulders, I was just really uh, 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 doing good. And then I looked back, I said, wow, yeah, God was working all these things and, and working it out in the background. And, and so that's why I was adopted, was to come to the States. And that's why I went through all these surgeries, and I talk a little bit more about that in the book. And that's why I went through all these experiences, and now uh, uh, what God wants to do is to use me to save other people. And so within... Six months of my conversion, I had already made the decision that I wanted to do two things in life. Only two things really mattered. I wanted to, number one, be a missionary. Uh, I had grown up in a cross-cultural context. I was cross-cultural. I had grown up speaking Korean at least until four, and then English, and a smattering of a bunch of different uh, uh, languages. Um, and so I wanted to then somehow bless someone else's life. I wanted to be a missionary. And the second thing, in spite of my negative experiences, I wanted to adopt. Because that still, from this perspective looking back, it was like, oh, that was why I got adopted, was so that I could be saved. And I wanted to help someone else out. Well, with that faith and those determinations, I got married to Catherine we went to Buenos Aires, and we worked there for 12 years. We had two biological children. We adopted uh, um, a baby from the northern part of Argentina, Tucumán. Uh, he has cerebral palsy, um, and that's how we got him, because we were willing to take a child with uh, physical uh, uh, limitations. We moved back to the States after 12 years, so he could go through some pretty major surgery. We moved to Memphis, and I worked there as a church planter, starting a Latino church. And... Uh, I had not remembered the, the treadmill because um, um, that, that was part of a previous life. And while we were in Memphis, began what St. John the Mystic, uh, a Spanish mystic uh, from Spain, uh, refers to as the dark night of the soul. Yeah. And, 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 and that's when I started to experience a, a lot of pain. I'd had a lot of surgeries already. But I started experiencing a lot of pain in my hip, in my legs, my feet. And it turns out that the leg length discrepancy, polio stunts, kills muscles, but also stunts growth. So I had surgeries to even out my legs, and that leg length discrepancy was causing complications. The overuse of muscles to compensate for the polio muscles, polio affected muscles, the paralyzed ones, uh, after doing their work plus additional work was starting to take its toll. Um, 
increased muscle weakness, sensitivity to cold, chronic pain in the joints and the muscles, uh, lack of sleep, uh, cramps. I've woken up two or three times here uh, with, with uh, get woken up with cramps. Um, and, 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 and in my life up to that point, I'd been pretty healthy. I used to walk on a treadmill, which I can't even remember doing. Yeah, all of my house, all the houses we lived in were two-story, not a problem. Uh, all of my cars were manual transmissions, and I had no problem in doing the clutch. Uh, but now I, I was finding myself increasingly unable to do those things. Well, my attitude was better to burn out than rest out. Yeah, and it's uh, it's a missionary kind of a thing. It's like yeah. So, what worked for me in my BC years before Christ was drugs, uh, illegal ones. Now that I was a Christian, I stayed away from those. But then I took legal ones and I loaded up. I just you know you take as much Tylenol and you take as much uh, ibuprofen as you need and you just power through the pain. You ever heard people say that? You power through the pain. Well, my doctors were telling me in Memphis at the Campbell Clinic and other places I went that, that I was at a point where if I continued my lifestyle without making drastic and significant changes, that I would be in excruciating pain and in a wheelchair uh, at a very early age for the rest of my life here. Polio will generally not kill you unless it affects your uh, lung muscles or your chest muscles, uh, but it would be a long and slow death. Um, the motto for polio survivors is conserve to preserve. So scale back on all your physical activities. Um, they had me counting how many steps I took a day. Um, they told me to get a handicap sticker for my car. Uh, and now all of a sudden I went from being a very driven, successful missionary church planter guy who was an overcomer to being disabled, <coughs> disable, unable. And the physical limitations were a challenge, but it was the emotional and then the spiritual challenges that really were the hardest to overcome. I gave up all my sports equipment, gave away my tennis rackets and my baseball gloves and my racquetball equipment, my ping pong paddles. And I began to try to get my head around what was happening. I hated being needy. I hated having to ask people for help. I still do. Even yes yesterday. I spilled, I was trying to carry too many things in one hand and I spilled it all down my front. And so in addition to hating being needy, I hated being messy <laughs> and embarrassed. And, and you know, see, I, I had bought into this whole Christian thing, right? I mean, that's why God saved me was so that I could serve him and I could be this, this driven type A missionary guy. And so now I was feeling the very same thing I felt like after my adoption. It was like, wait a second, God, why in the world did you save me to bring me to this? Disabled, unable to do anything, at the mercy and dependency of all the people around me. Having to ask my wife to push me around in a wheelchair. Being the only person seated when everybody else is standing. I, I, I almost felt like there was this tug of war between God and Satan, and I was the rope. And Satan pulled on it, and then God says, no, 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 not so fast. But then Satan pulled it again, and God pulls it back. And I was just ready to be done. I went into a pretty deep depression, still functioning as a minister and preaching every Sunday, Latino church. But a dear friend and counselor helped me begin the process to kind of reframe. Um, see, I never considered myself, the polio had never really affected me that way when I was younger, because I could do anything I wanted to. I limped a little bit, but I climbed mountains, I played tennis, I did everything. Polio never limited me 
from any physical activity, but now it was ruining my life. And I was just angry. I was bitter. I was frustrated. So, so one of the things that Linda Oxford, our dear friend, helped me to see was that, well, you know, Jim, sooner or later, everybody has to lose their freedom. If you live long enough, you're going to have to give up your car keys someday. It's a horrible discussion, but you'll have to do it. If you live long enough, you're going to have to, everybody has to give up their tennis rackets and set aside their walking shoes. And everyone has to put away the, the weights and whatever it is that you might have done. It, you're just having to do it a little earlier. But what you're going through, the pain and the, uh, the discomfort and the dependence is what happens when you get old. So I decided, well, what do old people do that are sensitive to heat, are sensitive to cold, and need to be in the sun more? They move to Miami. <laughs> they move to Florida and buy themselves their retirement home. So I did that when I was 46. <laughs> and I bought a one-story house, and, uh, and we've been living there ever since. But the part that I want to really emphasize that helped me spiritually, because even though I was changing the outside stuff, here, I still hadn't made peace with God. And so I spent a lot of time reflecting and thinking about the incarnation. Jesus becoming flesh, becoming human. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized when Jesus became human, he did so willingly and deliberately knowing where it would lead him. And his desire to connect with us was so deep that he was willing to endure pain, suffering, horrible torture, so that he could walk alongside us in our pain. Don McLaughlin last night was talking about what, what, is our body, what are our bodies for? They're for the indwelling of the spirit. Another way that I look at that is that that indwelling spirit now, Jesus' spirit lives in me, and Jesus' spirit limps every time I take a step. And Jesus' spirit wakes up in the middle of the night when I do, and Jesus' spirit is sitting with every cancer sufferer as... Uh, as they're taking chemotherapy treatments or they're going through surgery and recovering, anyone who has any kind of chronic, ongoing, uh, debilitating disease or condition or illness that requires treatment, sometimes the treatment is as bad, if not worse, than the illness. Jesus is walking right there with you because of the incarnation. He continues to incarnate us, every single one of us. And then I spent some time in the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. Um, this thorn in the flesh thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. I asked the Lord three times about this. Take it away from me. I don't know how you imagine this in your mind. Like it's it, one prayer, stop it, stop it, stop it. This probably comes closer to a chronic condition. Maybe it was over a period of three years. Maybe it was a period over, over a period of five years. He would pray and wait for something to happen. Months later, nothing happened. Prayed again. And the response each time was, my grace is enough or sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I didn't really think about weakness until this moment. And what does it mean that God's power is made strong in weakness? It means unless I am broken, God's power can't really work. Strong, healthy, vibrant go-getters don't need God because they can do it themselves. And it wasn't until I couldn't do it that I was forced to realize all those years I had done it my way, by my strength, because I was an overcomer. And now, God was finally the one working.
I, I regularly get asked, uh, at what point are you going to have to, are, are you going to be able to get up, give up your cane? Uh, you're going to uh, get better soon? I said, well, I, yeah, I, I will give up my cane. It'll probably be to turn it in and exchange it for a wheelchair. Because, you know, there's some things in life that just take, take an entire lifetime to get over and to deal with. But there's a time coming when we return to Eden. Revelation chapter 22, there will be no longer any curse. Because God and his presence and his light will take out that curse. And that's when I'll walk. Much like Sally mentioned that she has never known a day when she didn't know and love Jesus. I've never known a day when my legs worked right. But there will come a day. And I long for that day and we pray, Lord Jesus, come. And while we're waiting, we support, encourage, and bless those around us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. That's beautiful. <clears throat> Thank you for coming. Um, I hope those of you, uh, well, those of you who are here today, uh, well, <laughs> all of you, um, but also those of you who were here yesterday as well are getting a sense of um, what God does, if you didn't already know, what God's been doing since the beginning of our, our existence um, of, of his creation of us that um, he heals always that he is with us always um, that we are the ones who don't see and feel um, his presence that he is always there in us in our lives healing and um, surrendering us to his um, healing I think Jim did a, did a wonderful job just kind of repeating over and over again that, that God was there, that God was always, um, every, you know, as, as he started giving up what he was doing to, to bring, um, to power through, to do what he thought he could do and should do, God kept saying, no, no, don't do that. And as I had this beautiful opportunity to work with each of our contributors, um, that's what I kept seeing. It's an unusual experience to put, a con to put an introductory chapter at the end of a book. But we did that intentionally with, with the chapter that I wrote because it is both introductory material and a, sum a summary of what all of our other authors had already written, which is that God's story is that he surrenders us over and over and over. He's been doing that since the beginning of time. God heals. God always heals. He is always healing. Um, thank you, Sally, also for, for sharing that that is what God did in your life. In your life. Um, holy God, lift up to you this hour. May every word that was spoken here be consecrated to you in holiness. May every word that is spoken this week that is yet to be spoken be consecrated to you. In the power of your spirit, in the name of your son, amen. amen. Go and be blessed and bless others.